Six weeks ago, January 6th, I had uh, double knee replacement surgery, and I'm doing well. I'm walking, so that's good. But listen, I don't want this to be about me. So let's just dive right into our sermon series on knee. <laughs> Hamaya. And uh, uh, coincidentally, my first uh, sermon title is Time to Rebuild. Uh, so you probably can guess what my illustration is going to be. <laughs> but, uh, so I, but I have a question for you. Uh, when have you done some life rebuilding in your own lives, in your past? Life rebuilding happens when something in our life changes and requires a response from us. Uh, it could be something physical uh, or something about a career uh, or a move or a relationship, even our faith. And uh, it doesn't matter how well built our lives are, when those kinds of things happen in our lives, those kinds of changes, we have to rebuild different parts of our lives. Um, my knees needed rebuilding, and so on January 6th, I had them both replaced. And um, it's not an easy process, but I'm going to be, everybody tells me I'm going to be happy about it, uh, I don't know, 10 years from now, but some point at which I'm going to be happy about it. Uh, and uh, some of us have more challenges in our lives than others, uh, and we have to rebuild more. But all of us, all of us face rebuilding, uh, and it may need to be in our values or our priorities uh, or what we call success or we look at how we impact other people with our words and our actions. At some point, we all rebuild. But I have a question for us. Why? Why? Why do we have to rebuild? I mean, it's a challenge. It causes pain. It, it's, uh, uh, it, it, why would we choose to rebuild? And I have two words for us. Turning points. Turning points. They're not in your notes, but you can add that. Uh, we all have turning points in our lives. These are crucial moments, events, circumstances that happen that change our lives in some direction. And uh, we have positive turning points like getting married uh, or having children, a new career, uh, retiring, uh, all those kinds of things are positive. Graduation from college, uh, you know that's a turning point. We also have those negative ones, the difficulties, the challenges, the setbacks in our lives that, uh, that push us into rebuilding some part of our lives. So that's what happened to my knees. Um, they've been bad for years, uh, but uh, a year ago, a year ago January, I had a, a moment where something happened. I don't know what it was, but I just had excruciating pain in my right knee that uh, I mean, I could barely walk, and of course, it was my first week here, so I preached with a cane, and uh, you know, evidently I needed humility, so that was God's word to me that first week, but um, uh, still, it took a year for me to actually go get the surgery done, so sometimes we procrastinate on these things, um, but but that was a turning point a year ago where it's like, oh, I really have to get something done. And now I'm in that rebuilding stage. So let me ask you a question. Take just a moment and think about in your own life turning points. I, I got to believe you could come up with at least one turning point in your life where, where it helped, it changed your direction a little bit. Just take a minute and think about that.
So uh, how many of you would say, yeah, yeah, I didn't even have to think about it. I got one. I got more than one. Right, exactly. And um, how many of you would say, you know, as I reflect back, I hadn't thought about it this way, but now that you mention it, I did rebuild some of my life. There, was, there were areas that in my life that changed that I had to work on because of that turning point. All right, there we go. So we're, we're here. We're right in the, we know where we're going. We, we're all familiar with it. Um, it happens to all of us. So we're going to spend the next few weeks in the book of Nehemiah looking at rebuilding we have well-built, rebuilt lives uh, all the way up to Easter. And we're going to be looking at this person, Nehemiah, uh, who, who was doing okay until this turning point happened in his life that we're going to read about. Now, Nehemiah is a character in the book of Nehemiah. It's titled after him. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of history around this story uh, but some of you know that the basic concept of Nehemiah is that he goes from wherever he is uh, in captivity back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And there's a lot of history uh, related to that. And we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit. Uh, but first I want us to read um, this opening, it's actually the whole chapter, 11 verses uh, of Nehemiah that'll, give, that'll set the stage for us. So here we go. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, which is November, uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was in the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, Things are, are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you were unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, even then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, which they were, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Well, he's, he is talking about praying. So I think, why, let's us pray. Lord, we thank you for this book and for this follower of God that had his life changed because of the news that he received. Lord, we are all susceptible to receiving news. And we pray that you would use Nehemiah in our lives to prepare us for when those times come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we might ask, why 
do we care what this fellow, Nehemiah, uh, what he heard from his brother and these other fellows who came from Jerusalem, uh, and why we care what they thought about what happened in a city that, by the way, is a thousand miles away. Why? And uh, the, the clue is in our text, and we're going to come back to it uh, towards the end, and, and we will answer the question, so why does it matter that it's Nehemiah? Um, so, but I want to first say that Nehemiah is part of a very big story of the Bible. So there's multiple stories in the Bible, but some of them are very big. This one is called the Babylonian Captivity, and uh, it covers multiple books of the Old Testament. And uh, the story goes that, the simple story goes, is that the nation of Israel was defeated by the armies of Babylon and taken into captivity. Uh, 25% of the population of Israel was taken away in slavery. And some of them as far as 1,000 miles away. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, uh, and it was substantially destroyed, and the wall was torn down, the protective wall that, you know, cities of that day had, and the uh, gates were destroyed. And sometimes we read these stories, probably most of the time, we, we pick up a story like this, it's, it's part of our daily devotional, and we read it, and we don't really know the context. We don't know how does this fit in with the chronology of the rest of the Bible. Where's, where's, where's Nehemiah fit? And we can make assumptions that, well, most of the time, probably wrong, which I did as I started to read this and study it, I assumed that Nehemiah was part of the Babylonian exile. He was, he was taken as one of those people uh, in Israel, one of that, some of that 25%, and taken off into exile and put into slavery uh, in uh, Babylon. That is wrong. Uh, it turns out the Babylonian captivity took place 150 years before Nehemiah. Israel has been in exile for 150 years, almost as long as the United States has been a country. They have been in exile in Babylon. And uh, Nehemiah has never been to Israel. He is from this country, what we might call Babylon. He's Babylonian, uh, like I'm Norwegian. My ancestors come from Norway. I've never been to Norway. Um, But I would say, well, I'm Norwegian, uh, but, you know, I'm American. And that's what Nehemiah was. Well, he might be Jewish, but he's really Babylonian. That's where he grew up Um, and had never been back, uh, never been there. So uh, another thing uh, about that, turns out uh, everything I've been saying about Babylon is actually not correct either. So... Over the 150 years, Babylon did defeat Israel and take them into captivity, but then the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Artaxerxes isn't Babylonian. He's Persian, this king that we're talking about in this text. So actually, Nehemiah didn't live in Babylon. He lived in Persia. He was Persian. Uh, So there you go. And um, as I read the passage, I also thought, oh, Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, it says. So he's this poor old guy that, uh, you know, is an expendable slave that has to drink a little bit and eat a little bit of the king's wine and food every day so that, you know, in case someone's poisoned the king, uh, well, Nehemiah dropped dead. Get another Nehemiah. You know, that, that kind of thing. That's wrong. 
<laughs> That's an incorrect assumption. It turns out that uh, the, the position of cupbearer to the king is a highly respected, highly trusted position. Um, very few ever receive that. So Nehemiah is actually a younger man at the top of his game. He, is, he has got a career path. He is doing great uh, when we begin to read about him in Nehemiah chapter 1. And our story picks up in late autumn, as I said, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, around November. And if we cross-reference Nehemiah with the book of Ezra, which is another one of these Old Testament books that is part of this Babylonian captivity story, here's what we learn. Ezra took a group of captives, exiles, back to Jerusalem 15 years before we start reading about Nehemiah. And guess what they were doing? Rebuilding the wall. Ezra had taken a team of people to rebuild the wall 15 years ago uh, in, in Nehemiah's time. And uh, as far as Nehemiah knew, uh, it was successful. I mean, the, you know, they don't have texts and tweeting and, you know, photo, you know, all that stuff. They, I mean... It, as far as he, he, no news is good news. He's, 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 everything's fine. Wall in that city that I've never been to, a thousand miles away, that I don't really care about that much. Uh, I assume the walls have been built. He was expecting to hear when his brother came back with these others, a story of renewal and rebuilding that would proclaim that Israel may be hurt, but we're not defeated. The nation would return. Frankly, he expected to hear a story, the kind of story we have about 9-11 right? What's our story about 9-11, about the Twin Towers that fell, but the World Trade Center that's been built? How many of us remember where we were on 9-11? That's about 20 years ago, and I remember exactly where I was. That was a turning point for our nation. Uh, it was a trauma for all of us, uh, one of our nation's most frightening and tragic moments. Now, almost 20 years later, we have this inspiring building in the place of the Twin Towers. So, I am pretty sure this is a uh, fisheye lens because I don't think there's any buildings that have that, you know, curve to them. But that's the World Trade Center. How many of you have been there and seen it? It's, it's spectacular, and we've seen photos like this as well. Um, it reminds us of the tragedy of 9-11, yes, but it also inspires us and gives us hope. We, America, built this. We moved on from the tragedy. The building, this building means more to us as Americans than renewed office space, right, and commerce. It represents our resiliency. It's a statement to the world. We won't go quietly into the night. We may be bowed, but we won't be broken. That's what the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem meant to Nehemiah, to the Jews in exile in Babylon, now Persia. Unfortunately, that's not the kind of news that Nehemiah got. Imagine if when we Googled present-day photos of Ground Zero or we went to see it, instead of the World Trade Center, it still looked like this. That's, that's Ground Zero. That's the walls of Jerusalem. We'd be devastated. It would say volumes about us as a nation, our nation's inability to recover and to move on. A present-day photo like this, when we thought everything had been rebuilt, it would, it would send us to our knees with our hands covering our faces, and we would be saying, oh my God, 
literally, oh my God, what are we going to, what are we doing? That's Nehemiah. Can you feel it? Can you imagine what that would be like? It would be a turning point for every one of us. Some of us, when we discovered the truth, we'd have to do something about it. We, some of us would volunteer and go to New York to help rebuild. Some of us would give money to rebuilding projects. <clears throat> I don't think any of us could be blasé about it. It would be a real turning point. And this photo is the equivalent of the report that Nehemiah's brother gave. So if we imagine the grief and the challenge and the sense of personal responsibility that would come over us if this was our experience, we begin to get a sense of what Nehemiah was experiencing. A little bit when he got the news that we, uh, that he just, that we just read about him from Nehemiah 1. Nothing's been rebuilt. No one has moved forward. Jerusalem has basically stayed the way it had fallen, not 15 years ago. 150 years ago. Oh my gosh. Nehemiah faced a turning point in his life. He didn't expect it. He didn't see it coming. But once it happened, his well-built life needed rebuilding, needed change. And now we're beginning to understand the situation that he found himself in. Um, he had a good job. He had a good reputation. He had a rich heritage as a Jewish descendant, even if he'd never been there. And then something happened. He got bad news from his brother. Can we all agree? Something always happens. We always get news. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. And our well-built lives have to change. Sometimes we hear housing values have gone up or gone down. Stock market soaring or crashing. Um, someone we love, someone we, uh, that's dear to us, they're getting married or they've gotten sick. Good news, bad news. And it sends us into a turning point. And in Nehemiah, since we're going to have turning points, we might as well see what, what we can do about it. Nehemiah chapter 1 has two truths related to turning points. And both truths have two characteristics that we recognize in Nehemiah and that we recognize in our own stories. So the first truth about turning points is that they show us there will always come a time when we need to rebuild. There will always come a time when we need to rebuild. Verse 3 says, They said to me, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. It doesn't matter how well built our lives are, how well we've planned, things happen. News gets to us and there always comes a time to rebuild. Life happens. Difficult things happen to us. Uh, and when they do, we have the opportunity of seeing God work in us through those difficult times. We face all kinds of situations that we need to rebuild. We find ourselves in a time and a place in our lives, sometimes by choice, sometimes by circumstances outside of our control, where we need to change, to rebuild. And we see in Nehemiah a great example of that. And the first characteristic of needing to rebuild is being overwhelmed is appropriate. I just want to cut you some slack. Being overwhelmed is appropriate. Look at what he did. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love 
with those who love him and obey his commands. Being overwhelmed by difficult news is appropriate. It isn't as if, if you prayed more or had more faith and did more daily devotionals, you wouldn't be overwhelmed. You will be. I was. When I woke up and, you know, for days after surgery and literally for weeks, all I could barely do was watch Netflix. <clears throat> and not that very well. I, you know, I, I had books to read. I had taken stuff with me. I couldn't write. I, I, was wor- I, I had six weeks to work on this sermon. Guess how much of it was written by week five? I, I, I was overwhelmed by my situation. I could, I could read a couple sentences of something. I could pray, but not very well. Uh, but overwhelmed is an appropriate response. Most of us have very little margin in our lives and no spare time. So almost anything can push us over the edge uh, to being overwhelmed. So don't be so tough on yourself, but do what Nehemiah did. Engage with God. He mourned before God. And then he fasted. And then he prayed. And those are good places for us to start. Nehemiah, I just want you to remember, Nehemiah, the biblical figure, the hero of the story, the one who does all this amazing stuff, his very first step, First step in the process, be overwhelmed. If you ever get overwhelmed, good job. You're you're step one. Step two, the second characteristic of our need to rebuild is this. Recognize our need for improvement. And recognizing our need for improvement is appropriate. So he says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly not, by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Okay, now this could be a, a brain twister. You might be surprised. Wait a minute. This is about what's going on in Jerusalem. Why is Nehemiah suddenly talking about his own sin? Why has he turned the spotlight on himself and reflected on himself, and now he's confessing his own sin? Uh, have you ever been in a conversation where, you know, you're trying to deal with a, an issue with someone else and suddenly it's about you? Like, how'd this get to be about me? I, we're talking about you. Well, that's what happens with, with these turning points. With, when we are needing to rebuild, we recognize our own need for improvement and um, for reflection and repentance so uh, it, but it actually is a very natural human response think about watching the olympics how many times have you watched the olympics or any amazing sporting event um, where you know amazing athletes are at work and you go i could never do that that is personal reflection that's us going that's amazing they're amazing it, we immediately think that way and then sometimes it might send us to another step that says, I got to get back to stretching. <laughs> I got to get back to the gym. Guess what that is? Repentance. You see, personal reflection and repentance. And it happens to us when we see external situations. <clears throat> it's not just sports. Anything of significance or impact around us can do it. Maybe we see a random act of kindness caused by someone, <clears throat> done by someone at Starbucks or Target or something. And it, we might say, you know, I used to be like that. I, I could be kinder. That's personal reflection. And then I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make an effort. That's repentance. So we, this is a natural reaction for us. 
both those examples, something outside of us like the Olympics or unrelated to us like another person's act of kindness, they cause us to reflect on our own actions. And the story of failure in a distant land stirred up in Nehemiah a sense of his own failure. And I just want to say, thank God, we're not immune to being stirred up by stories of other people. There are so many bad stories going on now, you can't hardly pick up anything without reading about bad stories. What if our only response was, you know, to be immune? What if we were just cynical and sarcastic? Oh, what a horrible way to live. At at least Nehemiah, it stirred something up inside him. He responded to it. So turning points lead us to understand that there will always come a time when we need to rebuild. And we see that being overwhelmed is appropriate. And that personal reflection and even repentance is appropriate as well. There's a second truth that we learn about our turning points. And that is that they lead us to partner with God. They lead us to partner with God. It says, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will... I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Turning points are are an opportunity to identify the scatteredness in our own lives. He says, if, 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 if you go away from me, you're going to get scattered. And, and I know we feel that in ourselves. But it's never too late for any of us. We can always turn back. <clears throat> And when we look at our own lives and we reevaluate our goals and we return to God, what we discover is he's drawing us back. He says, I'll draw you back and we can move into a point of partnership with him. Nehemiah's turning point led him to rebuild and led him uh, to want to be about something more than he could possibly do on his own. And that he couldn't do without God. He needed God to be with him in that. The question for us is, are we partnering with God on anything? Or are we doing everything on our own? Is there some element of our lives that we cannot accomplish without God's partnership? So the first characteristic we see from Nehemiah about partnering with God is that when we partner with God, we begin to pray specifically. Pray specifically. He says, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. What a specific prayer. Of course, sometimes we're afraid to pray specifically because then when it doesn't happen, we're like, well, you know, God didn't answer my prayer. So we pray something general like, let my day be better today. And, you know, well, I guess it was. So um, when we partner with God, God puts something on our hearts that we can't possibly do on our own. And there are challenges in our way and we get specific about it. And we say, God, I need for you to do this. And we're doing, and I'm, I'm calling on you for this because we're doing it together. That's what happened with Nehemiah. He got passionate about getting this wall rebuilt. But guess what? He's a thousand miles away, a captive in the king's you know, throne room. He can't do it. What does he need? He needs the king. And he needs the king's kindness face toward him. And so he prays specifically. Vitally important 
for Nehemiah to have the king act in a certain way. And so he, he prayed specifically. Maybe you're like me. Your prayers can get kind of general. My prayers can be kind of general. Lord, we pray. We just ask that you would be uh, good and that good would come to my family and to my friends and to the nation and uh, to the church. Those are, those are fine prayers. But when we begin to partner with God, we get desperate and we, we begin to pray specifically. I had a... Uh, opportunity to do that. I, I applied for a, a calling as an executive pastor, and I was excited about it. It all seemed to work. I had a, um, an appointment and, and a meeting with the pastor nominating committee, and it went great. I loved them. They connected with me. It all felt right, except for one thing, the job description. There was some stuff in the job description that was just didn't feel right, and I didn't feel like it was a good fit for me. But I loved the opportunity. I loved the church. I loved the people. And so I went home and I started praying specifically, God, please change the job description so that it'll fit me, so that I'm the perfect candidate for it. Now, if you know anything about pastor nominating committees, that's crazy talk because the job description is one of the first things they do. That is so far in the past and it had to be approved by the session and approved by the presbytery and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's like there's no chance that I could have any impact on the job description. But I call, got a call from the chair of the pastor nominating committee. And she said, uh, something surprising has happened. We went back after that conversation with you and we had to look back at our job description and we didn't think it was right and we took it back to the elders and to the staff. We've changed our job description. We think you're the perfect fit for it. Wow. I was executive pastor at that church for 10 years. God changed it. And I think I was in partnership with God. And he, he was like, Neil, pray this. Pray this specific prayer so I can answer it and I can receive the glory for it. So when we begin to partner with God on something that we're passionate about, our prayers get specific. And the second characteristic of partnering with God is that we recognize the right place at the right time. We recognize the right place at the right time. Okay, here's that verse. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. I love that. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Okay, can I just tell you, if we had a soundtrack, this would be where it goes, dun, dun, dun. Up until now, we're now ready to answer the question, why would we pay attention to this guy who's a slave a thousand miles away uh, as part of this 25% of the nation that's been carried away? Why would we care what he thinks? Because he's the king's cupbearer. He's probably the only Jew that could have any impact on this situation. 99.9% of the others would, if they'd heard the news, they're like, God, that's awful. Uh, you want to get some coffee? I mean, that, what could they do? Nehemiah was the right person in the right place at the right time. You know you're partnering with God when suddenly, ah, I'm like the person that could do this. Now, this doesn't mean we have to be in the king's throne room. We don't have to be super special uh, you, one of the things I like to say is that sometimes my greatest ability is availability. Availability. That's all I got, but I'll be there. And, and sometimes that's all God needs. 
is for us to be available, to be the right person in the right place at the right time. So I'm going to wrap up a story with a true story, um, but I think the name of the fellow has been changed. We'll call him Bob. Bob was an insurance salesman in Washington, D.C., and uh, he'd become a Christian, and he was being discipled, mentored by some people who said, you know, you can partner with God. In prayer, God will change things if you will pray specifically. And Bob's like, great, I'm going to pray for Kenya. And they're like, nah, that's not very specific. You know, you could do. He said, no, no, that's what I'm going to do. So he started to pray for Kenya. Nothing really happened for some time until he got to dinner in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, and they were sitting around the table, a lot of strangers, and everybody kind of went around and introduced themselves and said what they did. And a woman said she worked at the largest orphanage in Kenya. Exactly. And he got all excited, and he started pummeling her with questions about it. And, and she was like, wow, uh, you must really be interested in Kenya. Why? Have you ever been there? No. Uh, well, do you know anyone in Kenya? No. Well, why are you so interested? Well, I'm praying for it. Okay. Um, would you like to come to the orphanage? Yes. So Bob goes to the orphanage in Kenya, and when he gets there, he sees the, sh- the shambles, the poverty, and, and the horrible conditions, uh, and he comes back to Washington, D.C., and he begins to write to pharmaceutical companies, and he tells them about the orphanage, and he says, you know, you guys throw away millions of dollars worth of medical supplies every year. Why don't you send some of it to this orphanage? And some of them did. And he got a phone call from that woman, and she said, Bob, you're never going to believe it. We've gotten a million dollars worth of medical supplies because of your letter. And we're so excited about that. We want you to come, and we're going to have a party, and we want to celebrate what God's doing uh, and Bob had begun, by the way, to begin to pray specifically. Once he got back, he was no longer just praying for Kenya. He was praying for the orphanage, and he was praying that the pharmaceutical companies would send the stuff to them. He was partnering with God. And God came through, and the pharmaceutical companies came through. So he flew back to Kenya, went to the party, and because the orphanage was the largest orphanage in the country, the president of Kenya was at the party. And he met Bob. And he said, would you like to take a tour of the capital? And Bob said, sure. So the president of Kenya takes Bob on a tour of, Ken- of the capital. And uh, along the way, he sees a-, a prison. And he says, what kind of prisoners are in that prison? And the president said, political prisoners. And Bob said, well, that's not a good idea. You should let them go. Okay. So Bob flies home. And uh, a couple weeks later, he gets a phone call from the State Department of the United States. And uh, the voice says, is this Bob? <laughs> and he says, yes. He said, have you been in Kenya recently? <laughs> yes. Have you been speaking to the president of Kenya? Yes. What did you say? <laughs> well, I told him he should let the political prisoners go. And the State Department said, we've been trying to get him to do that for years. And the talks have stalled. And There was no way forward. And then a few days ago, he let them all go. So we got on the phone, and we called him, and we said, why did you let your political prisoners go? And he said, because Bob told me. (laughs) How about that? Do you know who Bob is? The right person at the right place at the right time, partnering with God. Oh, my gosh. 
And but he was an insurance salesman. That's like us. His story is no more implausible than Nehemiah's. A slave a thousand miles away from Jerusalem who's in the king's courtyard, court, uh, throne room and, and he says, I think we ought to go rebuild and Lord, help the king be kind to me about this. Wow, we're gonna find out next week what happens. But, but for us, as implausible a, a story as those, we all have them. We can all be part of it. I want us to just this week pray a specific prayer. Lord, help me be the right person in the right place at the right time. We could pray that, couldn't we? Let's pray.